You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi. This episode of The Projectionist Has Smicha suffered from the difficulty of having Yitzchok speak as he was driving, making his way uh, to his home in upstate New York. And the quality of the recording is is poor, I will say that. However, the content, what he's talking about, his enthusiasm and his description of the significance of the film, Forbidden Planet, I think is worthwhile. And instead of jettisoning it and asking him to re-record, I beg your indulgence uh, to push through. Uh, I think it's still intelligible what it is that he's saying. He's talking about this 1956 classic and how he rediscovered it and how he was able as a mature person to find depth and meaning from it. So um, I apologize for uh, the technical problems. Hopefully those things weren't, won't dog us in the future. I think it's still worthwhile uh, hanging on and waiting for the second part of the program, especially when I hold forth on ET, which I think is worth your listen. Enjoy. Hi, I'm with Yitzchak Kalakowski. Yitzchak's on the road, making his way home. I'm sitting here in my living room, but we're we're thinking about the uncharted territories, the planets themselves, way beyond the confines of New Jersey, New York, out in the Milky Way galaxy, and beyond. Um, I, I think it's you know we're talking about science fiction films, and tonight and of course that's a state you know people are talking about of course of disney's um light year which is uh perform underperforming in the um in the box office uh and maybe some of it has to do with uh, oversaturation of the toy story franchise but it is a science fiction uh, uh story which i'm actually interested actually with, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that tim allen is not doing toys yeah i i think there was a reason why I think there's a reason why Tim Allen's not doing the voice. He might be too old to do it. And also, I think the the, the chop, he's been canceled. You might be correct. You might be one, again, the same thing that's caused Disney to insert the same-sex kiss in Lightyear might be the reason why Tim Allen wasn't considered appropriate for the voice of Lightyear. I think one of the things that they tried to indicate was that the, the, this is the movie that in the Toy Story world, the toy was based, it was supposed to be a franchise, a toy of. And therefore, right. they could tell a science fiction. What I'm trying to say, it's okay, is, is that the science fiction genre is alive. It's, again, the, even the newest uh, Pixar offering is basically what we would call a staple of science fiction. I didn't, From what I've read, it's about a team of explorers who are going out to some planet to go to discover something, et cetera. And so this is something which, you know, I guess even from uh, Menz's film, you know, to the moon, right? What, what is it called again? You know, a trip to the moon, um, which is like one of the earliest uh, silent films. One of the earliest silent films that we've had, we, the idea of transporting human beings beyond and thinking about how we would interact out there and, using it as a metaphor, 
like like Star Trek did so famously uh, to social issues here on you know in this planet. Um, so science fiction is clearly uh, it's not a genre like the Western that you scratch your head at. Uh, that um, you know that you have to uh, uh, you know you have to constantly reinvent. It seems like it's 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 consistently as all the Star Trek iterations, even now on CBS, uh, is on other streaming services. So this is a, a a genre that we've talked about is alive and well. I mean, I'm, I'm, this week I'm going to Monster Bash in Pittsburgh, and one of the most exciting things whenever we go there is not only to meet the actors or actresses who are in the movies or, or their children sometimes come out, but also to see the original props that were used in the movies. And both of the movies that we're going to speak about tonight, uh, I've been able to encounter those props uh, at Monster Bash, actually, uh, the, the, uh, from, from both of these movies, uh, they bring them out. I've had pictures of them. I have videos on my YouTube channel with the props from both of these movies no no i no, i agree especially listen if you're a film aficionado and there's more to the movie than losing yourself you want to know how the magic was done uh <laughs> you you want to see you know you're right the props are crucial to you because it it, it 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 underscores how brilliant the directors and the the filmmakers were in terms of being successful and bringing you there, oh, you know, uh, especially when you when you can touch them and feel them and, and realize how they aren't. This is not you know a laser beam. You know this is not necessarily the, here's the transporter room. You know here's the actual animatronic being that was Robbie the robot or uh, whatever. So this is a. Uh, I agree with you. You it, it takes a certain amount of love to want to actually want to own and be connected uh to those original those original details um yeah it's got to be 40 years old so i've been waiting to june mid-june of 2022 to talk about this film because i i remember when it came out so the film i want to talk about i'm going to leave uh as our second part why don't you talk about the film that uh that you want to speak about go ahead i I think that common denominator I feel about both of these films is that these are iconic films, they're highbrow films, and also they're a little bit, for me, I, I, I usually like the more schlocky, you know, uh, you know lowbrow fare, and, and, the, and these are both two very highbrow films that I even find to be somewhat too, too much for me, it could be dramatic, it could be pretentious, but I I recently gave Forbidden Planet a second chance. I'd seen it a few times. I remember taping it off of TNT Monster Vision or something along those lines in the 1990s. Um, and then uh, it was actually at those, at those times uh, they would have different popular actors come out and post the Monster Vision show on TNT. And it was LeVar Burton from Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, I knew it better, Reading Rainbow, who was hosting the movie that he wanted to present, was, was Forbidden Planet. And then I, I purchased it on DVD, and, uh, and I watched it again, and then 
uh, this weekend on Spike Cooley. We were able to go you know, uh, record and watch the, uh, the Spike Cooley show was also Forbidden Planet. And I actually sat down watching the movie, which I hadn't seen in a number of years. And I, I everybody who is familiar with this film from 1956 knows you know, how brilliant it is, how iconic it is, especially like uh, like you mentioned before, uh, Robbie the Robot is a, an iconic figure that comes out of this movie and then is used. And so so you, you said, why don't you give a little synopsis of what 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 is this? You know, again, we the, the film is well known. What's the basic synopsis of Forbidden Planet? And, and the highbrow aspects of it. First of all, it's an adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest. That's the first part that, that makes it very highbrow. The second thing is, um, is, is how it focuses on uh, where I remember, yeah, I used to search through the TV guide or the, the paper version of the TV guide for which science fiction and monster movies are going to be shown. And the planet was always described as being very Freudian because the, here's the monster from the id that, you know, you know, Freud discussed the, the idea of the ego and the id and the id, the ego and the superego. And so the, the monster comes from the id. So basically, the first thing that's just, you know, that stands out about this film, even compared to other films of the 50s that were, again, highbrow science fiction like today, the Earth still, you know, we see the day the Earth still starts off with Michael Reddy's character Klaatu spoken about early on another uh, podcast where this alien is coming, landing his flying saucer in Washington, D.C. Here we have, we see it also flying saucer and it's landed, but it's not one of theirs as it they there is just still they ask, you know, is it one of theirs and one of one of ours? Here in Forbidden Planet is one of ours. Uh, they get a few things wrong. How were they supposed to know? They they uh, predicted that the first man wouldn't land on the moon until uh, the end of the twenty first century. So you know, unless unless they're they're going with the conspiracy theories that we didn't go to the moon, which are kind of silly. I, I get it. Uh, so so but, basically, they have to they have to. They are sent to They're sending this, this flying saucer to this other planet out, out there, Delta, I think, or out there for to go uh, to, as a reconnaissance mission to rescue uh, the, the last survivors of a mission that had been sent there some 20 years earlier. And as far as they knew, there was maybe only one or two survivors left uh, from this. Uh, voyage to this planet, and Leslie Nielsen is the uh, is the commander of the of the ship, but he's still uh, serious. You know, I think it's almost impossible, you know, considering his success and his really equating himself with that the the figure in police uh, story. Um, you know, in all the those police films that he made, The Naked Gun. Um, it's almost impossible to to take to see him in his serious roles. Um, he looks very different too. I mean, obviously, he's much younger, but he it, it, it was the same person. 
actually I always comedic roles. You always had, you know, very wide eyed and uh, almost cartoonish looking. And so, but indeed, it's it's, it's the same uh, Leslie Nielsen. It's not a, it's not Leslie Nielsen uh, for the planet. And when they're approaching this planet, they make radio contact with the survivor there on the planet who's played by Walter Pigeon, who of course had a very illustrious and dignified film career. Um, and, he, and he's telling them, don't, don't come here. You're, you know, I can't, he's not telling them, you know, I, I'm not, I, I'm not going to allow you to come here, but he's telling them, if you come here, I can't be held responsible for what is, what might happen to you or your crew. Which, and, and that's, you know, kind of giving away, you know, the, the gun in the first, uh, in, the, in the first. I understand that's showing the gun in the first act that, you know, something terrible will yeah. happen. Some monstrous thing will be unleashed. Will happen, but that, that he is responsible for it. And, and even though he's trying to bear no responsibility for it, um, he comes to the realization that the monster that is attacking the people, this invisible monster, is actually coming. It's the monster from the id, as we said before, and it's and it's coming, which is you know level of the subconscious mind, but it's coming from this uh, Walter Pigeon's character, his his own id. It is his own base animal, you know, kind of like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, where they're you know they're existing in the same body but in different roles at different times. Here, the kind of the Mr. Hyde that, that Stevenson was talking about that's hidden within a person that uh, was hiding inside the person actually becomes uh, separate from, from Walter Pidgeon's character and is manifested as this invisible monster that uh, at certain points, they, they have some methods to make it visible and they're trying to fight it and they can't do it. And ultimately, that's his own end. I, I, mean, I don't want to give away the whole movie, but that's basically the whole uh, trajectory of the film is to find out that he is the monster is coming from him. It's coming from his own subconscious. And I think one of the most poignant scenes in the film is where uh, Leslie Nielsen explains to this audience, uh, I think is his name, uh, that you know, every human being has this Yetzirah within him, has this monster within him, within the end. And that's why we have laws and religion to really, to uh, make us, to, to domesticate us. And that's, it's fascinating that here you have, you know, they wanted to see how important this movie was. You know, I like to point that out, but monster from the end. But Leslie Nielsen is pointing out that the cure for the end is more of a Jungian cure of how Jung wrote about the psychology of religion, which was something that Freud, for the most part, rejected. He wasn't interested in that one, but he wrote <coughs> near the end of his life a very strange book about Moses and monotheism that uh, you know, has a lot of this very quirky and, and not typical book from his ideology, and also just a strange book as opposed to Jung, who you know, when they asked you, you know, do you believe in God? He said, I don't believe, I know there's a God. He was a, a, a person who was intensely interested in religion and actually had a great deal of interest in Kabbalah and Hasidus, even though 
himself was a Jew and Freud was a Jewish extraction, the book was not. But you know, wrote that the the, the, the Magad of Mesrich, you know, was was Pipus or any psychology of doing it. And really, that's a very Jungian response to say that that's how we are domesticated as human beings through religion and laws, through these archetypes that bring us away from the monster that's lurking in our head. Um, and again, all of this sounds very pretentious. We're used to, you know, Robbie the Robot, the next year was in a movie, The Invisible Boy, you know, which is, uh, uh, you know, for children, uh, you know, uh, much more simple movie, much more, even though it was, you know, was still the same science fiction type of thing, but totally different type of approach as opposed to this very, very hybrid. But I, I realized it, the pacing doesn't make it as pretentious as I thought it was. I think one of the things that ruined it for me when I was younger was that version that was shown on TNT was widescreen letterbox being shown on a regular square TV. Now we have our widescreen TV. So the TV was all full of this movie as opposed to when I was a kid, you, you think we're fitting a very long rectangle in the square television and you weren't really able to see, you know, because, you know, we wanted to not miss anything that's on the side. We wound up with these black boxes, letterboxing on top of the bottom of the screen that, uh, you know, really kind of ruined the, ruined it for me as a child and a few other movies I remember on Sci-Fi Channel that I was really looking forward to seeing and I felt they were ruined by letterbox and now that I'm able to see them, uh, you know, because they, they weren't very easy to find when I was younger uh, and now have them on TV and they're screaming everywhere. And so it's a very different type of- Watching it, uh, I guess a number of years ago and I, the, the beginning is so plodding that it's very difficult to you know the acting is so wooden in the beginning that um you really you really it's i think our our listeners need to be told it's worth the wait because it, it really does the setup is, is quite talky and i guess what's the word i'm looking for um there's a lot of exposition in the beginning uh before you get to the to the, to the heart of the matter um about what's really going well, on it, it, it's while that is true, on the other hand, it is also um, very, you know, very visually stunning. So, so I you know, a lot of movies, especially in black and white, even though I, I always prefer black and white movies myself, um, this movie is just, it, it, it's a, it has those visuals that they, especially, you know, nowadays we're so used to the special effects that it, it doesn't, we're not misfold from it, but in 1956, these special effects were groundbreaking. They were... Oh, I understand. I, I think part of what the film, and, and you mentioned it before, was the fact that the, the species that have died, in other words, we've talked about on this program about the the, um, the cheekiness and the kitschiness and the of, of the aliens and what they look like with big eyes or lizard faces. Here, you actually don't see the aliens. They, they actually yes. have the aliens have actually died. They are, they are a civilization. What they say, 200 centuries. Right, 200, right, 200 centuries ago. And, but it's, but the, the krell, that, that, that species that, that, that had lived there, um, Dr. Morbius has really 
tapped into their discoveries. And even though they were a superior species, um, they fell and they destroyed themselves because as they were trying to advance their own minds and using scientific technique to push the boundaries of intelligence to turn ourselves into beings that could do anything, there was this other part of ourselves, as you said, the id, that was also unleashed, that was unleashed in a way, almost uh, proportionately in a way that we, that was monstrous. I think this is, a, like you say, the Krell aren't there, but it's a warning, really, in the 1950s, the mid-1950s, as computer technology was beginning, other advancements in space and science, um, sort of a similar, sort of uh, using Shakespeare, but almost a, a similar, and I think less preachy way than the day the earth stood still. You know, the day the earth stood still, when you have, you know, the speech of Klaatu at the end about, you know, hey, what are you doing with your your nuclear wars, your nuclear weapons, you're going to destroy yourself and you're going to destroy others. Um, here, it was actually, what is scientific advancement doing to us? Um, when our, Which is a similar theme that Kubrick um, uh, explored in 2001. So I think there is a... Um, what we're seeing now with the advancements in artificial intelligence, we're, we're crossing over some very scary borders right now and and uh, are we, you know, it's a bit different than what's presented in this film. Right. And, 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 and like you say, I think it's interesting that, that what has survived in the film, you know, is, oh, you want to see Leslie Nielsen serious? You want to see Robbie the robot? And I think you're right. Um, the, the real import of the film, I think, has been lost. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's, like you say, it's probably worth a view again. You know, part of what, you know, you, you, you talk about Walter Pigeon. You know, I, I remember Walter Pidgeon from his films in the 40s, of course, where, you know, he was a leading man. Uh, he was in Mrs. Miniver and some other films that were Academy Award films that are very important. I, I think Walter Pidgeon, we talked about Cary Grant in the past. It's hard uh, to get old and to be able to embody a character uh, in an important way when you're not the leading man, uh, when, you know, you're too old. Uh, and, and I think that's maybe, I don't know, you know, perhaps Walt, you know, Walter Pigeon was a, uh, a good actor, but I think that was, you know, maybe one of the reasons that, you know, that he was limited in the later part of his career as well. Uh, you know, you know, what could he play? What, what roles could he play that he could fill and be uh, satisfied with? This might've been, this might've been his swan song, right? In terms of his great, of his great roles. He, he was in, he was in the film version of Boyish the Bottom of the Sea, which was uh, about five years later, so he still. But this is probably his last really major role. Uh, one thing, what before I, I mean, I, before we paused for a minute, I was mentioning the props from the movie that uh, Mr. Shank had brought to show us at, at Monster Bash. He had one. He had one of the three uh, flying saucer models that were used in that film. And also some of the guns and some of the outfits, some of the uniforms. And he showed it to us at Monster Bash a number of years ago before he passed away. Uh, you know, I, I'd seen it, I think it was in 2015, 2016, that I remember him bringing these items to, to the show. And he gave a whole lecture about how these same props were used time and time again in so many different movies. Not only, I believe this movie is from MGM, 
but they, the various studios even would share the same props that you know Columbia and, uh, and, and Universal. They would all have access to these same props that were made originally in 1956 for Forbidden Planet, and then they would be used uh, by the three students. They'd be used uh, at the Band from Uncle. They'd be used in the Twilight Zone. They'd be used in various movies. Shasha Gabor, Space, and uh, and the same movie, the same props were. Time and time again. And well, yes, I know this is a um, <clears throat> a favorite topic of yours about the recycling of a recycling so of props and recycling of stock footage. I know yeah. that this is something that that you enjoy in terms of I have Robbie the robot, but Robbie the robot was used, uh, you know, playing this... various roles all throughout. Again, also showed up in the Twilight Zone, showed up in Lost in Space, similar to the other road, the same man who made the robot from lost in space also uh the same designer. i think there was a lost in space episode where um that that robot met robbie i think so um i think there was also a uh just to talk about walter pigeon again most of the roles after um forbidden planet he played some sort of senator some sort of admiral um usually in some sort of you know minor role uh, because he had a presence and because he had a voice um i think one of his you know he was he played Zigfield. In Funny Girl, he played a, a senator in Advise and Consent, um, and um, a, 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 a film that I remember watching on television when it came out in 1965 uh, with Leslie Ann Warren, Cinderella. He was the king. I remember that film. I was watching right. it when it was live in 1965, watching it from in black and white on our little tiny television down in Memphis. So Walter Pigeon did have some sort of uh, continuance, but I do think this might've been his, uh, uh, might've been the greatest, uh, the last great film role that he had, especially in terms of uh, how important he was to the plot. And um, you know, it's, it's clearly worth seeing again. E.T., um, there's been a lot of retrospectives about E.T. Uh, Spielberg himself, 20 years later, issued a version of E.T. <clears throat> that he had enhanced uh, some of the special effects. One of the things that happened 20 years later was it was sort of a politically correct version of E.T. Um, the the police that are chasing the boys on the bicycles uh, through the magic of um, you know, photoshopping the film, uh, they aren't carrying guns, they're carrying walkie-talkies. Um, they added another six minutes um, based on, I guess, some footage that Spielberg had uh, initially rejected. It's interesting, though, that when the Laserdisc came out and um, Spielberg actually, um, that was the last time you could actually see the 2002 version of the film. Uh, it's out of circulation now. It's almost impossible to see. Spielberg regretted uh, the upgrades in the film uh, that he had made. Uh, it's almost like Spielberg understood that there's a certain magic and power to what you produce. And obviously history uh, and technology is going to come later and alter things. But if you're going to go back to that original and alter it continuously, then the testament to the time is not true. And I, I applaud Spielberg for actually <clears throat> withdrawing his updated version of E.T. My point, though, however, is, is that E.T. is a film... And I think even much even more than Forbidden Planet, which I guess might be a lost gem, E.T. I think has continuously been loved for 40 years. You know, it's a film that at one point was rejected uh, by the initial studio 
uh, Columbia, I believe, but when it was when Universal decided to put it out, um, it became the the largest gro- the greatest grossing film uh, till Jurassic Park. You viewed Forbidden Planet recently, and I tried to be when I talk about these films to at least have seen them within the last month or so to at least know what I'm talking about. I have not seen ET in years. I would say ten years. Um, but I can talk about it as, as, as if it's as fresh and real, because I think it is a film that not only has an incredible idea behind it, but is executed so perfectly that it stays with you. I think it is Spielberg's greatest achievement, and that is saying a lot. Uh, Spielberg is, is whatever his detractors want to say about the most recent film that he made, which was West, the remake of West Side Story. Um, Spielberg is one of the most gifted filmmakers Hollywood has ever seen. Um, and I would say a proudly Jewish one as well. I'm not so happy. Again, I have not seen from beginning to end Schindler's List. And that's really because I have a hard time watching Holocaust films because of where I come from and because of my background and because of my history. But I have seen most of Spielberg's films. And, um, and he has contributed in ways you know, as much as Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola might be in, in some ways greater intellectual artists, um, Spielberg, I think, can take his place with them as one of the most influential filmmakers of the 20th century. Um, and people who, as you've, you've told me before, when I told you I want to talk about E.T., everybody has cannibalized E.T. Um, I think you said that <laughs> you'd rather watch Mac and Me than E.T., which is, of course, a knockoff of... Yeah, of very movie. cheap. You know, uh, you know, kind of funny. I mean, the thing with E.T. was so dramatic for me. Like you mentioned, that they, they replaced the guns with, with walkie-talkies. And I, at one time, I remember seeing it. It was a very traumatic experience when they tried to end. Well, that was something that, that Spielberg was trying to capture. I, I'm going to lose reception since 12 years. Spielberg is... Um, you know, again, the film is really, and I think this is why it's different than Lightyear that we talked about in the beginning or Forbidden Planet. It really, in my well, mind... That would be, though, and it also has the product placement. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't see uh, it as a, a science fiction film. There are beautiful images of the spaceship. Uh, Spielberg enhanced them for the 20, um, 2002 edition. Um, the aliens, of course, they worked very hard on how to make E.T. look um, to give him uh, enough of a humanoid feature. Of course, his hands uh, in particular, um, you know, the the almost um, godlike fingers and his powers. um, But it really is about a child. It's about a child in a family where uh, the family is being torn apart through divorce. Spielberg's history was of a person who his family was torn apart. Spielberg is Elliot in, in so many ways. In some ways, he's also like, he's also like um, Michael, Elliot's brother. Um, but this is Spielberg's story. And I think, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's out of California, a place that Spielberg grew up in. And I think, therefore, um, it, it really is the, his most personal work because, you know, his connection to Judaism and to the Holocaust was laudatory and important, but this is the story of a person finding within himself strength, even in difficult times. A person who doesn't have a father, who has to come to terms with living 
only with his mom and finding some sort of uh, intellectual, emotional core that is able to allow him to survive. And that is really what happens here with Elliot. Um, you know, E.T., of course, is, I don't have to really tell anybody that E.T. is, um, is a castaway. He's, he misses the boat. <laughs> his planet has, the, the beings, the E.T. beings have landed on the planet and are, um, that's the way to be, the, the film begins in the forest, of course, there. And all of these beings, you don't see them. Because, you know, Spielberg wanted, just like the, the shark and Jaws, Spielberg wants the audience to wait, to anticipate, to, to, to think about, hmm, when is he going to show up? But it's clear, although you don't see his face, that he has missed the boat. And now he is stuck in the garage somewhere or in, <laughs> of the suburban uh, place where Elliot lives with his family. And when Elliot discovers... Uh, E.T., um, he now is going to, uh, um, it changes his life because not only is this something special for him, something that's uniquely his, something that belongs to him, but this is something where he's able to, by connecting to this being, this being that he shares this emotional bond with, a being that gives him a, a through first of all, allows him to care for someone else, to grow up, to not just be a person who is being cared for, but to care for someone, to recognize the plight in someone else. The emotions of uh, other beings that he's with allow Spielberg to not only comment on the state of what was going on in, in, in America at that time. E.T. becomes sentient in in, in terms of understanding our world, English, and specifically the American uh, um, environment by watching television. And one of the greatest scenes in E.T., of course, is where E.T. is already bonded with Elliot. He's connected with him, and therefore um, he spends a day uh, watching TV, daytime TV, and actually being moved and changed by films that he's watching. Um, E.T. sees the raw emotion, the power of films, just like Spielberg as a little boy discovered the power of films. And as E.T. Is, is, is watching these films and also cracking open a six-pack from the refrigerator, Elliot is doing a science experiment. And once again, Elliot now, through E.T., is able to care about more than just himself. He's able to care even about the frog that he's dissecting. And um, and as, you know, it's, it's a great uh, shot as Spielberg moves between Elliot's uh, <coughs> uh, revolution in the science lab and E.T. getting drunk and uh, inspired by uh, Hollywood at home. And Elliot uh, jumping on a chair and kissing uh, the, that Elliot grabs and kisses while E.T. is watching, I think, John Ford's The Quiet Man or John Wayne kissing Maureen O'Hara, I believe. Um, so it's just, it, it, and of course, I think the film is, is, is fantastic in terms of melding the story with the music. John Williams' score is so perfect. Uh, Spielberg, in fact, reshot certain scenes in order to match the score. Um, the, uh, again, you can't help, you, if just hearing the strands of music from E.T. can bring back so much 
of the film, the, the, the chase scene of as the, um, as of course Keys, as he's known, Peter Coyote, uh, the scientist who's trying to realize E.T. has landed and is trying to discover him um, as, as he and his team are chasing the boys, uh, Elliot and his brother's friends on bicycles uh, Elliot, of course, first, and then his all the the boys themselves are able through uh, ET's magic, ET's ability as telekinesis to actually fly in the air. And that moment where John Williams' score takes off and the bicycles fly, uh, again, it's, it's really one of I think the magical moments in in, in cinematic history. Um, a simple, uh, and again, the plot is relatively simple: alien stranded on planet, boy takes an alien, boy tries to shield alien. Uh, the government tries to find Alien. Um, alien dies, um, and, and many people have seen it as a, a Christ metaphor. Spielberg denied the connection. He says, oh, come on, my mother owns a Jewish restaurant. Uh, there's no way I would be able to do a film that's about Jesus. But I do think, I do think that Jesus is part of this film as well. Um, you know, part of the, I know what, I think what Yitzchak, you said you yourself, you found it difficult to watch E.T. die. Um, you know, you know, as E.T. is placed in um, this coffin and Elliot is able to express his love, he's able to do something which he hasn't been able to do towards his mother and towards his brother and sister. He's able to talk about how, how much this meeting meant and how, how much he misses this person. And he's able, adult-like, to, to express love, not like I just love ice cream. You know, this is the, the, a friendship of love, a love of friendship that is an indicator of, of a real maturity of a human being. Um, of course, again, Spielberg really does, takes out every emotional uh, cue because as the coffin is closed, you know, E.T. has uh, been able with his brilliance uh, from the planet that he comes from, been able to construct from Elliot's toys um, he's able to construct a communication device that is able to summon his uh, spaceship back. Of course, that was the tagline, ET phone home, ET phone home. Uh, the commercial, again, another, you know, AT&T enjoyed getting a little product placement in the, as, along with Reese's Pieces, which of course is was, um, <coughs> you know, the M&Ms didn't want to, like you said, didn't want to use their, uh, <coughs> they didn't want to use their, their candy. Uh, Reese's Pieces had a big jump. But uh, so did so did the AT and T at that point, um, and the idea of E T T E T phoning home uh, as he's as he's closing the the coffin. You can see that E T is indeed, although he seems to have shriveled. You can see just the very beginning of a little beat, a little light that emanates from the window in that coffin uh, that they're closing him in on, and you realize that E T is indeed alive that death is not complete, the idea that we don't die and that's the end of things. There's still an, an eternal aspect that's inside of ourselves. And this, of course, might be a Christian idea. <clears throat> it's what both you and I know that this is something that we believe in as well. You know, Jews do believe in the afterlife. We do believe that the soul is eternal. We believe that there's something within us that, that, that exhibits itself that can't be destroyed. And that's part of what there's the mason of the goof also which we also see here that's right and et does come back and you know i i can't look if there if there's a cynic out there that has a dry eye when et comes back to life you know you you need some therapy 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, because that is that is such a uh, an uplifting moment when you can realize that yes, yeah, that there is life beyond, and um, especially of being like ET, who is just an explorer. He's he's, he's he is is the embodiment of curiosity and goodness, which is part of the the the, the magic muse that Spielberg was able to imbibe within himself to really become the filmmaker and artist that he, that he, that he became. So I, I think one of the, the great things about E.T., and I could really talk about it for five shows, is that um, even in the, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Drew Barrymore in a minute, but the climactic scene of where E.T., uh, the, the spaceship lands, and of course now uh, the government with all their plans and anything that they want is completely squashed, similar to Spielberg's other real science fiction film that he made a couple of years earlier, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's a film that should go with Forbidden Planet and Lightyear as a film about meeting people from another world and what that means <clears throat> and, and what it will mean when we will meet. What does it mean for society when we will make those advancements? That's not what E.T. is about. But there is that scene when the, when the spaceship lands and that, of course, ends any conversation because <clears throat> any sort of scientific desire to, to get E.T. Is, is, is squashed at that moment. Because at that moment, you have these beings from another world. And E.T. Um, you know, enters the ship. He waddles into the ship. Again, we haven't talked about all the, 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 the little people that helped, besides the animatronic device, the little people and the puppetry that helped bring E.T. to life at the time. But it was really the script and the idea that made you accept that illusion. But as E.T. waddles up into the ship, of course, the dog <laughs> runs into the ship as well. And, um, and uh, you know, E.T., Elliot, uh, at, before that moment, he asks Elliot to come with him. That will he go? You know, maybe Elliot, you know, can, can go with E.T. Uh, and, and leave. And Elliot says he can't. Elliot says stay. He wants E.T. to stay, but of course he knows E.T. can't. E.T. will die if he stays. But e but Elliot can live with E.T. and maybe live a world beyond. Maybe you could actually live in the Hilma Emmas, live in the and and of course this is something where we're still grounded here. And and Elliot says the most mature thing. He, uh, despite the fact what imagination and, and and these faculties that have been unleashed can do, he needs to live within this world with his parents, with his with his mother, and and make the best he can do to connect to his father if he can. He has to stay. And and what is it that Et says to him? He says, "Be good." Yes, you can still go into this world of 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 art, you can go to this world of creation, this world of beauty, this world that the movies and, and literature and, and other things allow us to escape to. But ultimately we need to be good. We need to take that world that we can construct and live in and thrive in and fly in and be good here, which is part of what E.T. tells him. But that's what he says. And again, I, I, I tear up thinking about it. Again, I haven't seen the film in about 10, 15 years. I'll be right here, he says. E.T. is going. But then E.T. using his finger, 
puts the finger onto Elliot's head and says, I'll be right here. Because it's, it's, this is where we are able to use our mind and we're able to, to, to draw from it the memories and, uh, of people that we've seen, of, of accomplishments that we've had. And we're able to use that internal power that you talked about before in Forbidden Planet, the id, uh, the other elements that, that became so monstrous on that planet. And we can actually marshal those. We can marshal those and we can use the, the, the best part of ourselves to, to help ourselves and the world. And that's part of what the message of E.T. is. I think also the greatness of the film is embodied by the fact that when E.T. goes into space, you know, of course, you know, with John Williams' score rising to a crescendo, a great, great rainbow is formed. A rainbow is formed. You know, again, the symbol of God's pleasure with the world. The world can survive. And the last shot is not of space. This is not a space film. The last shot is Elliot watching. It's, a, it's, a, it's an extreme close-up of Elliot's face. And maybe he's not even watching the, 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 the ship anymore. He is processing. And that's where the film ends. It, it doesn't end in the stars. It ends with the close-up on the boy. And I think that really, in, in, simple way, in a simple term, tells you what the film, the story of the film is. Uh, before we close here, I just want to mention, of course, the other parts of E.T. that it, it did, of course, not only introduce Henry Thomas. And again, we talked about Henry Thomas's career. I talked about him a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Raggedy Man. <laughs> you know, he, he's not a, a particularly gifted child actor. You're not going to compare him um, to uh, Freddie Bartholomew or Mickey Rooney or anything like that. But, um, you know, he uh, and he's done workmanlike jobs in other films. But again, this is, a, again, obviously his greatest film and the film that uh, you know, will, 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 if, you know he, he was able to be a typical American kid. And it's a testament to Spielberg that he was able to get this type of performance out of him, um, even in the cursing and things that, that he used. You know, he wasn't a, <laughs> Freddie Bartholomew could, 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 was like a miniature Olivier. And this is just a typical American suburban kid out of California. And I think that was, that's what Spielberg wanted. Uh, in terms of Drew Barrymore, who obviously is Hollywood royalty, um, you know, she, of course, has a, made a career uh, after this playing all different types of uh, roles, um, uh, juvenile roles, and then uh, teenage roles, many of them extremely um, uh, not, <laughs> not the type of fare that we would ever recommend, um, you know, in, I guess ending in Charlie's Angels and some other films that she was making. Um, I, again, if, if Drew Barrymore, she was only, you know, she plays, uh, you know, an important role because, you know, E.T. is a little doll for her. And as a three-year-old, uh, you know, she's, she's a three or four-year-old. She's very happy uh, to have this little being around that she could do dress up with and, you know, could even interact with. So again, Drew Barrymore is obviously a little gifted child actress here. I'm not sure if she, you know, uh, she, uh, she went on to, I guess, bigger things. I don't think she ever made anything better than this. Um, you know, obviously there, there might've been any little girls that could have played that role, but I think that for Drew Barrymore and for the Barrymores, if we look at them, Hollywood royalty, I think again, this film would probably be the film that 
that she probably if, if it made it, you know, it definitely propelled her in some way. Um, she 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 had a, a she was the the star of uh, I didn't see it but I read the book Firestarter, um, uh, which was based on a Stephen King book uh, that she was in. But um, it's interesting the other you know again Peter Coyote and the others D Wallace none of them really uh, are any major stars and I think that's really another testament to the film. The film works as a, because of what it is. Um, the people involved are really incidental. Um, you know, we, we've talked about Cary Grant. We talked about Betty Davis. We talked about other incredible actors and actresses. Um, so in that way, you know, you know, Bogart, Spencer Tracy, you know, E.T. doesn't have any of that. You know, it doesn't have really any great performances. But what it does have is really a, a story that uh, has a, an incredible universal appeal. Um, I, I think I'll, I'll end tonight with a little personal anecdote about E.T., um, we had a, uh, a neighbor, um, that we were very close to in our home in Chicago. Uh, it was a young couple and, um, they were very, we, we became very friendly with them. My, my children were young and my youngest child, uh, was born on a Shabbos. My two last children were born on a Shabbos. And I remember the, um, uh, we were thinking, we, we were thinking that maybe the baby was going to be born on Shabbos. So I went next door to this couple. They were not Jewish who we'd be friendly with. And I said, you know, we might need you um, because something might happen. Um, and sure enough, uh, uh, on the on the early Shabbos morning, I knocked on their door and they were ready. Uh, and they drove my, <coughs> they drove my station wagon uh, to the hospital uh, for, for my youngest child to be born. Um, and it was soon after that, that they had been part of this ride because the baby was almost born in the car. Um, that I saw my neighbor crying uh, and I didn't know what it was, but it turned out that, you know, they had been involved in helping us deliver a healthy baby and, and she had just had a miscarriage and she broke down in front of me and she said, you know, you know, we really wanted to give a little brother to, uh, to our, to, our, to their, to their son, Joe. And um, I didn't know, obviously, you know, I didn't know how to comfort her, but I said, you know, I, I've got this um, DVD at home of it wasn't a dvd it was a vhs i have a vhs of et you know maybe you'd like to watch it and i gave her i went and got her the vhs of et and she returned it back to me a day later and said how much it meant that she was able to you know forget about her pain and to see this film and it really propelled her into a good place so you know there the world is difficult, as Elliot knows, and we, we, we deal with pain and, and disappointment. And I think that a film that is able to be able to, to be a salve and a balm for people going through all different types of pain and difficulty in the most simple linear story. You know, Spielberg filmed the film, you know, you know, you'd slept it, of course, you're, you're a filmmaking geek, you know, that, 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 you know, most films are storyboarded and many times they'll film the most difficult scene earlier, especially if there's a problem of the actor only being available at a certain time or being able to get the location. Spielberg wanted E.T. to be filmed very much chronologically. From the beginning, he wanted the, he wanted the spontaneity of the children. He wanted them to really care and, and be worried about what was going on. 
and I think that really, you know, despite the difficulty of filming in such a way, and you know, and, and sticking, you know, to the chronological aspect of the script instead of filming stuff out out of order and then putting them together, I think that shows in the the power that the film has in terms of of actually being drawn up by the story, the excitement, uh, what you discover, um, even again the mother's performance. And I think that's part of the reason why it can, it can be this TV. I don't. I, I'm trying to think how old I would have been when I saw it, but uh, I, I I probably should give it a second chance. That's uh... well, it, you know, I, I, it is going to be shown again on an August a giant IMAX release um, on its 40th, and and there aren't that many films that, that that merit that. There aren't that many films, whether it's The Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind. Um, I think Spielberg knows that Jaws doesn't have that. That neither does Jurassic Park or Shinworth list. You know, I, I think this, 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 I think, I think it, it corroborates what most people say, write what you know, uh, film what you know. And this is really what he knew. This is really what he was. And I think because of that, um, I don't need his sanctimonious discussion of the Arab Israeli conflict in Munich. I, I don't need him to teach me about the, about the horrors of the Holocaust. Although I think it's 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 a very it's beneficial to the the Gentile world that there is um, such a film as as Schindler's List, but I think ET is able to cross those type of boundaries. I think it's able in many ways to just like you know it, it gave a little bit of a, a salve to to Carla, my next door neighbor. I think I think it really can hit people on on all ages. Um, you know, there's there's it really is, is so unique in a way. Um, you mentioned Christopher Lloyd in our earlier discussion. Um, Christopher Lloyd uh, starred in, of course, Taxi as Jimmy Nikowski. In Nikowski. Um, I don't know if he won the Emmy for his portrayal there, but of course that's what propelled him to his role as Doc Brown in Back to the Future. And there is a, one of the Taxi episodes that's really built on E.T. The whole episode is Jim trying to get the, the cabbies in the Sunshine Cab Company to go watch E.T. And although they all dismiss it as some sort of children's film, Jim knows that it has a power. You know, he's Reverend Jim. He's someone who has, through drugs, he's, a, he's attained a, a spiritual sense of things. And the, it, it's incredible that you have a sitcom that was built you know, by you know, James Brooks, who was the executive producer of, of Taxi, the whole sitcom episode, whatever it is, 24 minutes, whatever 25 minutes, is really built on uh, um, heralding and trying to encourage the viewers who are watching TV to go, go see E.T. the movie. <laughs> I think that's like, it's like incredible, right? It was, it was I guess, you can look this up. The whole Taxi episode was was really a a homa. It was like paying to people go see ET. We want you to be watching Taxi and buying you know buying Kleenex from the commercials. But but we really believe what's even greater than than our television roles is to see this movie. So I think the and Christopher Lloyd is the is the mouthpiece for that idea. And I think that's something that really shows you that people knew even in Hollywood this was something different. This was something beyond.
And it was something that I think uh, will test the time. Well, watch your step on the way out. Don't hit any cows. We'll talk in. Take everybody. We'll see you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 